1: Hello, and welcome to the We're Not Drunk, We're Multi-Billionaires edition of Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week. I'm Felix Salmon of Axios. I'm joined as ever by Anna Szymanski. Hello. And by Emily Peck of The Huffington Post. Hello. And most excitingly, by Mr. Tom Wright of The Wall Street Journal. Hello. Welcome. (laughs) Tom has written what I want to say is the most rollicking business book of the year. It is up there with whatever latest J.K. Rowling thing just came out. And it's all nonfiction. It's great. It is called Billion Dollar Whale. Billion Dollar Whale, which we were just having a discussion about whether we understand what that means. It's basically about this guy jolo who gambled a lot and if you gamble a lot the casinos call you a whale a whale so that's the um that's the explanation for the book title if you are confused by the book title the explanation for the podcast title if you're confused by that is going to be revealed in slate plus um, but we are going to talk about tom's book we are going to talk about Fraud and malfeasance and skull dudgery in the world of sovereign wealth funds and international finance. It's going to be a juicy episode. We're gonna talk
2: about Paris Hilton.
1: We're going to talk about Kanye West, we're gonna talk about Leonardo DiCaprio. All manner of celebrities. And we are going to talk about the China trade deal because we have to. Uh, But they all come together somehow. Um, let's, Tom, start with the book. And basically, this is two different tales in one. It's One is the grand tale of corporate, uh, of, of skulldudgery and malfeasance at the Sovereign Wealth Fund level. But also, it's just a biography, really, of
3: one of the craziest characters that anyone will ever read about. And his name is... Joe Low, Joe Low, Or Low Tech Joe is his Chinese name. But he was really probably one of the most the master networkers the world's ever seen. I mean, this guy, he could go into a room and he could figure out, you know, what the person sitting opposite him could do for him and what he could do for them. And he was able to put himself between powerful people. So when he was a just, just after he was, came out of Wharton, he figured out all the people he'd met at Wharton and how they could connect him to rich Arab business people and how his connections to the Malaysian, Deputy Prime Minister at the time, Najib Razak, and how he could bring those people together and how he could help move sovereign wealth um, and take broker fees. He started out as someone who, who was really one of these typical brokers between you know, huge flows of money, which is very common in, in emerging markets. And that, av- and that later evolved when he, be- he became powerful himself.
1: And yeah, powerful and... and well, I guess one of the interesting questions is... Um, is he slash was he ever incredibly rich is he slash was he a billionaire because I wrote about him once um and I called him a, a fake billionaire I called him like a, a quacks like a duck billionaire, someone who spends lots of money and looks like a billionaire, but actually isn't. And his lawyers then wrote me a wonderful nasty gram, which I still have somewhere, basically saying, no, 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 he's a genuine billionaire. So which is it?
3: Well, he was definitely a billionaire. I'll tell you a funny story in a second. But I mean, there's a philosophical question. If you steal all the money, are you a billionaire, right? Um, He actually met a reporter of ours in 2014, and his banker from a Swiss private bank called BSI. Now, Jolo took over this bank. He had almost everyone there working for him. It subsequently has been shuttered by Swiss authorities. Um, he had that banker meet our reporter in the lobby of uh, the Wall Street Journal's offices uh, on 6th Avenue, and he wouldn't come inside. And he had a bit of paper that said uh, $1.7 billion. Um, it was, this was what Jolo was worth. Because they, at that time, they were trying to create this fake narrative. He was trying to buy Reebok from Adidas. And they were trying to create this fake narrative that he really was a billionaire. Um, because all these stories in the Malaysian media were starting to percolate that where the hell did this guy get his money from? you know, his family were probably worth, you know, millions, tens of millions from Penang in Malaysia. They had a, a garment company. They weren't poor. He went to Harrow. But he certainly didn't have uh, billions of dollars. Can
2: you can you just back up a little bit and maybe tell listeners sort of how he pulled off that first? I mean, I call them heists. I mean, he basically, them I call them heists. And maybe just explain to readers sort of like I mean, this what is, he did. This
1: is the most amazing robbery. Like, you know we 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 talk about like bank robbers stealing millions of dollars, or sometimes you know some great drain robbery, which is tens of millions. These are robberies of billions and he does them he does more than one of them.
3: well we make the comparison in the book to Bernie Madoff, right where he it took him forty years of a pyramid scheme to lose eighteen billion dollars in investor money jolo took in 2009 In his, we break it into the three heists mm-hmm. and the first yeah. one was in 2009 he took 700 million dollars overnight so he had liquid cash and that's why he became so important to uh, the nightclub world where he spent a lot of it but just to back up on how he did it so i started to say earlier he um put himself between powerful people he got to know a a guy who's still ambassador uh, to the u.s for the united arab emirates called yusuf al Otaiba, and that guy uh, connected him to a lot of powerful people in the in in the UAE, the Persian Gulf state. That 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 state had a, uh, an investment fund called Mubadala, which was a sovereign wealth fund, but it didn't invest sovereign wealth. It ra- it raised money on markets, and obviously interest rates were very low after the global financial crisis, and so it was very easy for for these funds to go out and raise billions of dollars overnight. Jolo persuaded the Prime Minister of Malaysia to let him run a similar fund in Malaysia from behind the scenes. He got to know uh, this Goldman Sachs banker called Tim Leisner, who was uh, a partner and became chairman of Southeast Asia. And they, you, this fund, 1MDB, went onto public markets with Goldman's help and raised $6.5 billion uh, in bonds. And then Jolo just stole it. And the way he did that was he had partners in, in sovereign wealth funds in the Middle East, a, a fund called IPIC, run by a guy called Karim al And what Karim al did was he set up a sovereign wealth fund, a fake sovereign wealth fund. He ran a real one, and he set up a fake one. With the same name? With the same name, with a limited on the end. It's the real one didn't have a limited on the end. And then it, the, the, they put the, uh, set up a bank account in the BVI, and they moved uh, $1.4 billion into that, divided it up. And that's how it worked.
4: And in terms of how this money was used, it was certainly used by Joe Lowe to spend a lot of money on gaining celebrity friends and, and that kind of thing. But it was also used by the Malaysian state, or specifically by the leader of the Malaysian state.
3: Exactly. So the, re- the way he had cover to run that fund from behind the scenes was it was a political slush fund for Najib Razak, who lost power in May and is, is now arrested for all of this. So that's why he was able to do it on that side. And then he had his, his, his friends on the other side. And, and, but the amazing thing in this story is that the financial system allowed it to happen. Goldman didn't ask, for example, uh, the 1MDB fund asked one $3 billion bond to be deposited in a Swiss bank account. Why would a sovereign wealth fund have a Swiss bank account? It makes no sense. There, were, there was internal dissension about this in Goldman. That Goldman's own lawyer said, why are you putting this into a Swiss bank account? But the reason that they didn't do anything about it was because they made $600 million or 10% on these deals, which also made no sense. It was one of the biggest paydays in the world for Goldman.
2: It seems like it was the post financial crisis just hunger to get out into emerging markets and to just find money wherever they could sort of um what was the strategy in um, monetizing, monetizing the state monetizing the state.
3: We call that bilking the state in our yeah. book So
1: one of the things which which confuses me about this is is that there's this term sovereign wealth fund. Um, which, you know, we are all used to in, say, the Saudi context or the Singaporean context or the Norwegian context, which is basically where a country has a bunch of wealth and then goes out and invests it. And now there's this other weird creature, which makes much less sense, where a country doesn't have a lot of wealth, but borrows a bunch of money on the capital markets and then goes out and invests it. And it's like this weird, long, short debt for equity, something, something, play... How, like, is there any good reason for these things to even exist?
3: I mean, I don't think so. I mean, Mubadala, in, which was the model for 1MDB, so Jolo got to know the head of Mubadala through uh, Yusuf Ola Taiba, the ambassador. Um, they said, well, the, the, the rationale for it was you could leverage cheap money and you could help a country develop. But in 1MDB's case, they, just, they used the money to just buy some pre-existing coal-fired power plants. So it wasn't exactly... Uh, <laughs> you know, a, a thing that was going to vault Malaysia into the 21st century. But I think
4: this is an instance where this is very much something that would happen post-financial crisis because you had such incredibly low rates. So you have investors who are so hungry for yield that if you're going to offer them this, it to us now it looks insane that you would buy these bonds. Well, at I the mean, time, I'm
1: not... I don't... Even think it's insane to buy the bonds. These are sovereign bonds. You buy the sovereign bonds, or they all have sovereign guarantees. Like the people buying the bonds, it makes perfect sense. The the thing which doesn't make any sense to me is the sovereigns itself borrowing money not to, you know, spend on the state, but just to like buy stocks and bonds and assets around the world.
4: Isn't the point, though, that partly when you have some of these, they're actually supposed to be borrowing against? Other energy assets that they could develop. And then they're supposed to be using that money to invest in things like green energy or somewhat... It's a little different than a normal sovereign wealth fund, which is growing to then be able to support the state long term. And this is more the idea of we are just taking money from foreign investors and using it to invest in industries in our state. In that sense, it's not actually that different from just regular sovereign bond issuance.
3: I mean, I think there could be a, an mm-hmm. argument to do it if you had a business plan in place or executives that had ever done anything like this. <laughs> it, <laughs> Details. Mean, the, I mean, the, there was uh, the president of uh, Goldman's Asia business, uh, David Ryan, he said that he, in internal meetings, that he was concerned with this because the executives had never run a fund and they had no investment. At one point they were in the board minutes, they're talking about what they're going to, going to invest in and they say, let's buy an island off of uh, Peninsula Malaysia mm-hmm. and we can turn it into a tourist spot. I mean, this is the kind of things they're doing. I think. The, I think the question is: This is, it, it's an issue about kleptocracies, right? There are there are sovereign wealth funds and there are sovereign wealth funds. There's you mentioned earlier the Nor there's the Norway oil fund, right? Or there's Calpers in California. Then there's these funds that are just sort of set up to be huge pots of money that can be misused. And I think some of those Middle Eastern funds fall into that as well. And after the crisis, says it wasn't just one MDB. I mean, Morgan Stanley, Goldman and others were making tons of money. uh, Advising and helping IPIC, which was the fund that was the Jolo uh, interacted with to to steal money, they they were IPIC were doing things like buying Dame Lebans, uh, buying Richard Branson's space company after the crisis, and they weren't doing it with their own money either. They were they were doing it with leverage plays that the, the what Wall Street was helping them with, and a lot of that money was you know, also lost.
1: And remember that the guy who basically created this whole scheme along with tim leisner at goldman sachs was the same guy who built the libyans out of like what was it 1.5 billion dollars well
3: we should be careful to not say that tim leisner created the scheme i think that's i think that's important i mean joe lowe is the only person in this this story who has the 360 degree view of what's going on leisner's really interesting so we should talk a little bit about what's going with goldman right uh, Leis- so let,
1: let's go back very quickly, since we're just quickly on the subject of sovereign finance here. So let's start with what did Goldman do in Libya?
3: Okay, so um, the, well, the, the banker who structured these bonds is a guy called Andrea Vella, who's, who's currently the co-head of investment banking for Goldman in Asia. He's still there. He's still there. Tim Leisner was the relationship banker, the guy on the ground who was very close to Jolo and, and wasn't really the structuring whiz. That was Vella. And they teamed up together to to make this happen. Vela had um, a history of uh, doing deals with big sovereign wealth funds that didn't turn out so great for Goldman, including with the Libyan investment Authority in two thousand and eight they saw the financial crisis they saw uh, the Libyan authority they saw how um, the Middle Eastern funds would be buying up big stakes in U.S. banks after the financial crisis, and they wanted to do the same. So Goldman helped the Libyan Investment Authority do a leverage play for Citibank shares, which ended up in a one billion dollar loss for uh, the authority and uh, lawsuit, which Goldman actually won because the Lib- Libyan o- Investment Authority claimed that they they hadn't really understood the risks in the trade. It was a co- one of these collared trade. It was like very had huge downside risks for them. Um, and they but lost
1: in, my- in any case. Goldman did get large fees from this deal. Uh, Yes. And then the guy who structured the deal in Libya then gets on a plane, flies to Hong Kong, and then structures another deal for some, like, obscure Malaysian state. Was it Sarawak?
3: Yes, exactly.
1: Um, And then after having structured the Sarawak deal, he then goes on and structures what are ultimately pretty plain vanilla bonds for 1MDB.
3: Yes, I mean... The way that Goldman defends itself in this, in this is to say, well, this was a huge risk for them. They used a, a desk called the uh, uh, I've what it's called, but it was a proprietary trading desk that they used to buy the bonds. So they say they took on huge risk. But the thing that made a few things make no sense. Why was a sovereign wealth fund in Malaysia doing a private placement when it could have got the money much more cheaply on public markets? Well, sorry, over on, on the public placement? Um, why did they need the money so quickly and so secretly? You couldn't even get hold of the documents for this bond. Um, when we started reporting on it, you had to really, like, go through sources just to get a, 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 a prospectus. The prospectus said things like, we've got no idea what they're going to do with the money. You know, <laughs> or the, the, We don't know what the business plan is. Um, and then stuff like, you know, the money getting put into Swiss bank accounts, So there was, there was these huge red flags. Goldman also had pre-sold uh, a bunch of it to uh, funds around the world because it, it, the rates were so, the yields were so good. So the idea they were taking on huge risk also didn't really hold up,
4: right? Because they'd already pre-sold. Maybe one thing if they were buying all these bonds and they had no, there was no certainty that they'd be able to place them, which Correct. is seemingly what they were suggesting. But then that's just not true. Yeah, I mean, I like, th-
1: th- th- it they appears were, to be not true. They were sovereign bonds, right? They were sitting on the sovereign yield curve. They were sovereign. They had a sovereign guarantee, and none of them have defaulted, right?
3: No, Goldman made its money because it, it got them for like uh, you know ninety two. On a hundred, right? And then they the state, them. Yeah, that, was, that, was, that was how it got. So they said it was these were not um, fees. These were profits. <laughs> Important difference.
2: <laughs> Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply.
1: Okay, so let's widen this out a bit because what we have is this culture where banks and countries and individuals like Joe Lowe can conspire effectively to Keep or, or steal to, si- to steal money to siphon huge amounts of money from for themselves. Um, I mean, in the Middle East, you kind of don't need to steal the money because there really is no distinction between personal money and state money. In in Malaysia, they do have that distinction, so if you take it for yourself, then you are stealing. Um, but
3: talk a little bit about this kind of version of capitalism. So I think I think that's a fascinating point. I- there's this great email between jolo and some of some of the scampsters there is there's, there's too many to mention in the, in a 40 minute podcast but um they talk about how jolo's going to get the prime minister of malaysia to write off 500 million dollars and this gets to the question of did jolo ever have an end game right and and he seems to just steal through the first heist second heist third heist and never think about how he was going to fill the hole and i think the answer why he didn't worry about it was this was this was sovereign wealth in a in a kleptocratic state, and that he wouldn't have to he wouldn't have really have to worry about a, it's not like a bank heist where you know uh, sorry a pyramid scheme where you you have to keep it going. This was this was money that he could just get the the prime minister to write off, and I think what it says about capitalism today is that there are so many states that are basically mafia like organizations, and they have they 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 still have the access to huge amounts of capital and for, and they are enabled by uh western financial institutions not just not just banks auditors in this story auditors lawyers um jolo moved tons of money via sherman sherman and sterling here in new york um using using these arcane structures to move to move money around um auditors were Deloitte's uh, head of its Malaysian practice offered to deal with the media on behalf of the fund. Um, Swiss banks that uh, basically became Jolo's plaything. And don't forget Christie's auction house. Right. The auction house. I mean, the the auction houses also wouldn't have known where the that the money was stolen but but what
1: happened but i mean like so joe lowe bought a bunch of very expensive art at christie's and famous including famously uh, a jean-michel basquiat called dust heads and as you write in the book one of the reasons he did that i mean partly it was because he wanted to show off how much money he had because that seemed to be like this compulsion he constantly had um But another reason was that when he found himself in a bit of a sticky situation and a bunch of banks wouldn't release his money and he needed some liquidity in a rush, he could just take it straight back to Christie's. He didn't sell it for as much as he bought it for, but he didn't care. Like suddenly he had $30 million of liquid wealth from Christie's way.
2: I was really disturbed by how the global financial system and the institutions of the system help people, actors like Joe Lowe, bad actors steal money and move money around the world and evade taxes and everything. But um, the bits about the art market are just so delicious and appalling. Just the way people like JOLO and maybe not outright thieves buy these pieces of art for ridiculously inflated prices and then you described this basic uh, putting them in storage, basically, in Switzerland, in these temperature-controlled units, and just beautiful pieces of art. You said, like— The, the, Gine-
3: like... the Geneva Freeport has better art than the Prado. Or the...
2: <laughs> I mean, and they're just sitting there, you know, just waiting for the day they need to be, you know, sold it's again. A, it's with... a
3: metaphor for, for lots of things.
2: Oh, yeah. I mean, it was just— uh, I, I should
3: yeah. say that he got into Basquiat, uh, probably not because of money laundering. It's because he was very close to a guy called Swiss Beats, who's a hip-hop producer, who's Alicia Keys' his husband. <laughs> And and uh, uh, Swiss Beats is a, it was a big fan and collector of, of Basquiat paintings. So Jolo Jolo was kind of tutored by him, I think, and started to wear Basquiat baseball caps and this kind of thing.
2: But then, he puts the Basquiat in storage. Yes, it's just sitting there.
1: Yes. Even I, though he had all of these like crazy, <laughs> he had lots of wall space. property. He had, yes. he had lo- yeah, exactly. He had wall space in in in. Um Time Warner Center. Time Warner Center. And that's the in other in piece La- of it, that right? That huge the real house estate. he bought. He put a
3: bid in
1: for a house in Los Angeles but didn't buy it. Well, there was,
3: there, there was a crazy part where, of the book where he is... So he's become he's become close to Leonardo DiCaprio because he's off... Which we haven't talked about yet. <laughs> he After the theft, he he offered uh, DiCaprio 400 million in film financing at a time when Warner Brothers were pulling the plug on the Wolf of Wall Street. So he goes on to finance that with the money from this, from this heist. And we got hold of some emails in which... Uh, it, uh, Leonardo DiCaprio's bro- a property broker is used to show a guy called Joey McFarland, who was running this film company for, for JOLO, around this. I think it was a. They were asking for 170 million or something like that. It was a a, pla- a place in uh, in Los Angeles. It's
2: a compound, well, right?
3: Yeah, but they never they, they, they never completed that purchase. But I think he was. Uh, I think that was going to be his sort of ultimate uh, purchase. But he'd he spend 250, his 250 million on a yacht. He did. Yes. And oh, that was that, that was that's, good for him. that's probably peak solo. Yeah, exactly.
4: <laughs> what I do think is interesting, if you're looking here, whether you're talking about real estate, whether you're talking about jewelry, whether you're talking about art, whether you're talking about film financing, whether you're talking about fees for issuing bonds, it appears that if the money is coming in, it doesn't appear to be in anyone's interest to figure out where it's coming from.
3: That's 100 percent right. There's no there's no I mean, if you or I tried to move $10,000 across international borders, we're going to get asked a lot of questions. Right. It seems that
2: I literally can't pay for a can of soda with a $50 bill in this city. But he (laughs) stole billions of dollars and no one asked any questions. Well,
3: they were moving. They were moving hundreds of millions. And there's a there's a great part where um, Otaiba, I mentioned, is the ambassador, the UAE ambassador to um, uh, to Washington he he is discussing with his business partner on email about about Jolo and his business partner is saying well look the banks are a bit a bit sort of are asking Jolo's told me that the banks are starting to ask questions about his hundreds of hundreds of millions of dollars are getting moved but it never in all the research we did for this book over 3 years so we find one instance where somebody said well we're not we're not allowing that money to move because we've got no idea. there's, there's this great transcript in the de- so the Department of Justice is investigating all of this now right and uh, in, in the
1: classic case of well now that the horse is bolted let's go like lock that stable door
3: I don't know I'm gonna I'm gonna give the DOJ uh they, they're, they're they're doing something in this case you know in, in the summer of 2016 they, they uh, filed these asset forfeiture lawsuits which are attempts to get the assets back and they got the yacht back right that's now been seized none, it's been seized by the malaysians yes right, the malaysians, but none yes. of it has uh, jolo is actually he's on the run and he's actually using lawyers to challenge this but they, they they're trying to claw back the assets um and i don't know if it's going to be successful but that's that's you know that's their first step and then there's going to be a criminal uh investigation that well there is a criminal investigation can right i on.
1: just like clear one thing up when you're saying that jolo is using lawyers and he is sending out lots
3: of he's still like lawyered up. And he's sending
2: letters to Tom.
3: He's sending letters to Tom. Not, not directly to me, but to our... To our uh, his lawyers are sending letters to, to our publishers. And lawyers. His people and are talking to your people. And but, to independent bookstores around the world. Um, but the... But just to clear this one thing up,
1: on his legal team, does his legal team include Chris Christie?
3: It does. Chris... Chris... <laughs> Chris Christie um, is um, representing Jolo in Jolo in Jolo's attempts to um, argue against the the asset seizures. Wait,
2: uh, wait. Uh. <laughs> Chris- Emily.
3: <laughs> Emily cannot believe this.
2: Are you serious? Chris Christie represents... It's
3: not in the book, but we've reported it in the Wall Street <laughs> Journal a uh, couple of weeks ago. I, yeah,
2: I think this has not been reported widely enough. This is <laughs> astonishing. Joe,
3: Nick, Nick Caraway says of um, Gatsby <laughs> and the Great Gatsby, um, he's the most optimistic person that he's ever encountered, or, uh, paraphrasing. Yeah. I think that's Jolo, right? Jolo in 2015... <laughs> <And> Chris Christie. <laughs> <laughs> Joe, Joe, we reported in the journal... Uh, you know, that in 2015 about JOLO for the first time. And I think most people would give up, right? Um, JOLO is living in China in exile from Malaysia. Obviously, the Malaysian government has changed. His protector has fallen and is now arrested. He's in China where he's got some modicum of protection from the government there. It's a long story. But after all this came out, he did some seemingly corrupt deals with Chinese state-owned companies, infrastructure deals, to get to try to fill the hole and get more money. He's there. He's got, he can't access the international financial system because his, his name would be on all kinds of compliance lists now. He was using a Thai friend of his called Feng Fian Laomong which was a friend of his from Harrow, to pay shillings, the UK lawyers or the UK reputation firm, to um, go after our book to send legal letters all around the world to try to stop publishers from, from... It's not widely available in the UK. I don't think it's available at all in the UK because of this. So he's, And you
1: haven't managed to sell the foreign rights to, like, anyone, right?
3: Uh, no, that's not right. It's, this book has gone gangbusters in Malaysia because it's become part of their... Um, but that's that's the US edition of the book. No, there is an export uh, trade paperback.
1: Right, but it's exported from the US.
3: Uh, uh, correct.
4: So uh, one thing, we were, <laughs> so. we were talking about this a little earlier and I do think is interesting and maybe a positive possible upside is saying that this is so popular in Malaysia and actually is seeing, seeing what happened after this scandal came out in Malaysia, the fact that Najib Razak actually was pushed out of power.
3: Yeah, well, I mean, you know, to be honest, we, we wrote the book like he was going to stay in power. Mm-hmm. You're right. I mean, we had to we had to hassle. I, I learned in the process that there is a real deadline for authors and there's a fake deadline for authors. The, <laughs> you know, the fake one was a long time before the real one, but we were allowed to go right up against the real one because this story is playing out in real time. I mean, not only is what's going to happen to Jolo, uh, and what, what's going to happen in the Goldman case. And like you said, the, what's happening in Malaysia, the, the, the people of Malaysia are m- more, more sophisticated than perhaps people gave them credit for. People were saying, oh, nobody understands this 1MDB. What's a sovereign wealth fund? You know, uh, they, don't, they don't care about this. They just care about uh, inflation, cost of food, all of this. That's not true. The, the Wall Street Journal became a household name in Malaysia because of this. We didn't. I don't think we sold many more subscriptions because of it. <laughs> but people, people would uh, were reading it, right? It was getting stuff we would write would get taken and reposted on on local news sites. So people knew about this, and that's why he lost the elections uh, in May, and it's had huge repercussions because he was Nadia was not um, working with the Department of Justice, um, so the Department of Justice was not able to move ahead very fast. Uh, and, and there's also Singapore and Switzerland are looking into all of this. Um, and now that he's fallen. There's all this cooperation and it's moving ahead much faster.
4: And I think it's interesting if you're looking in a global context as well, because it's easy when you have these type of scandals come out to be like, oh, these these places are so corrupt. But I think what is different is what we're seeing now in Malaysia, what we saw with Zuma getting pushed out in South Africa, what we've seen with the Lava Jato investigations in Brazil is that people care. People are actually pushing. People are going to jail. People are having massive fines. People are getting pushed out of power. And I actually think in a way this is a good thing
1: totally agree. And if I think- only there was a kleptocratic administration which I needed pushing out. <laughs> about to jump in. I was
2: just going to make that point. Reading the book, reading about uh, Malaysia and uh, Najib, uh, just really drove home for me how lucky we have been in the United States in terms of not having a kleptocrat in charge and how worrying it is that when I read about Najib and his wife who collected, what, like hundreds of millions of dollars in jewelry yeah. from Jolo uh, thinking like... Donald like the whole time I'm thinking Donald Trump would do this. Like the only reason he's not doing it is we have slightly more um and th-
3: balances. Yes. Not slightly more. I mean I think I think America Americans should be proud of what's going on here. Not only do you have like, you know, when when Najib, when the stories about Nadja first came out and he was going to be arrested he kicked out his attorney general because yes, he, he didn't, yes, Probably you should right. mention I, that. Yeah. that. did well, no, But well, ours well, is holding. No, well, th- I mean, and <laughs> there's actually a link to, to to the to the billion dollar well story because Joe, Jolo tried Jolo hired Elliot Broidy, um, the the Trump associate, and offered him seventy five million dollars to try to stop. The, it's in the book, but it's only sort of right at the end, and we didn't. It was close to publication to lobby to get Trump to stop the DOJ investigations into all of this. And in December of last year, Jeff Sessions gave a speech out of sort of out of nowhere, talking about one MDB and saying this is the biggest one of the biggest financial heists ever. And it was it was read and seen as a as an attempt to To ward off people who are trying to trying to all the all the all the the swamp
1: types, basically giving a speech again to an audience of one in the White House, saying "Keep your hands off my mdb investigation." Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think so.
2: Holding the line, we Mm -hmm. have the checks, thank God. And
1: and you know the U.S. is. (laughs) Oh my God, the check is Jeff Sessions.
2: (laughs) I know, and like Gary Cohen, as we said, Gary Cohen from Goldman Sachs, who was then in the Trump administration in this book, comes across as pretty dodgy, but lately has been painted as the hero of the resistance for stealing documents <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> off oh. Donald Trump's uh, desk, allegedly, according to Bob Woodward. But this yeah. book brings home a reminder of like where Cohen really came from.
3: Well, the, yeah, I mean, there, Cohen was a huge defender of the business internally at Goldman. Is that, I guess that's what you're getting at that's right Yeah, That's what I'm getting Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he, um, When people inside Goldman said, well, not people, the president of, of the Asian business, who later left because of this, said, look, we shouldn't be, probably shouldn't be doing this and charging so much. I mean, ripping off clients, um, red flags. Uh, Cohen was a big defender of it because um, it, it fit into this monetizing the state, this doing deals with sovereign wealth funds. And there's, there was, a, there was a, a guy who's now, I think, a British parliamentarian called George Jabor, who we mentioned in the book, who had worked at Goldman on the Libya deal. And we quote him in the book as saying, look, the reason they like doing these deals is because if you're going to do derivative trades, you, you don't want them the other side of the trade understanding it too well, right? Otherwise, you don't make all the money you want to make. So that that's, I think, the context of it. Um, but yeah, I mean, it doesn't look great for Goldman. I mean, wh- whether it's, uh, uh, you know, red, missing red flags, if, if it's about missing red flags, they're going to get fined under the Bank Secrecy Act. And that could be like, that's how JP Morgan got fined in the Bernie Madoff case. And that could be like a couple of billion dollars. That, you know, there was a book last year, The Chicken Chick Club, um, about how that kind of stuff doesn't work because it's just an operating cost for the banks, mm-hmm. right? So what we're really looking at now is, and I think will help the book because it's going to be ongoing, is what's going to happen in the criminal case uh, with Tim Leisner, the, the banker who was very close to Jolo. He, after leaving Goldman in 2016, did some, some pretty interesting stuff. He, Including marrying Kimora Lee Simmons. He mar- married <laughs> Kimora Lee Simmons, but he also...
2: he wait, he proposed to her... <laughs> On a plane, having just met her hours before, do I have that story correct? You
3: read the book very close. <laughs>
2: <laughs> that was an interesting part. I was like, "What is happening?" Right. I feel now? like
3: this. I feel like this is on every page. There's something like that. Right? <laughs> what, what, this is not like how it really should work in normal life, right?
2: When Jolo, he he. One more thing. I swear, we can get back to finance, but Jolo at one point is starts dating miranda Kerr, who's like a supermodel and and he also becomes engaged to her as well right and it was just like
3: uh, so no they they don't become they engaged. don't become
1: eight million dollars worth of diamonds <laughs> which she then has to like give up to the department she of wanted,
4: voluntarily gave she up. wanted Amazing. funding for her skincare company <laughs> well they met she i actually about
3: it. i actually obviously i'm not from new york so i went down to the new Wonjo restaurant in Koreatown where they met and i yes. I, I had lunch there the other day it's not. It's kind of nice food, but it's not that posh. No. <laughs> so,
1: so we, we just have to hope that um, Evan Spiegel, the founding yes. CEO oh, of Snapchat, thank you for Snapchat, adding that. Yes, that was my um, <laughs> Doesn't wind up, you know, losing all of his money because he is now the the person funding the Miranda Kerr lifestyle. They are married. They have kids.
2: Amazing.
3: But we, I, I just wanted to get back to the, Gold, the <laughs> Goldman angle. Okay, let's finish yeah. with Goldman. So, so um, Leisner, after leaving the bank helped Jolo buy a bank in Mauritius, along with, the Thai, you do. along with the Thai guy I mentioned earlier, who was the front man to pay the lawyers, who, who recently we've written about. So the, there's a lot of unanswered questions about what exactly was the relationship between Leicester and Jolo and what was he doing and what did he know? And that's going to play out in the American court system.
2: So a banker might go to jail. Maybe. Maybe?
3: Maybe. Maybe. <laughs> that's with a rising question. <laughs>
1: Hello, I'm Imi Harper. On the Slow Newscast from Tortoise, I tell the story of how a Hong Kong billionaire was
3: silenced. I got bombs thrown into my house. I got people came here, ransacked my computer. And I, I got people fractured me. I got this and that, but I'm safe.
1: And what it reveals about the freedoms Hong Kong no longer enjoys. Listen to Hong Kong's Rebel Billionaire on the Slow Newscast wherever you get your podcasts. You know, I really would love to spend this entire episode just talking about the complete crazy that is one MDB in Joe Low. But there is also some complete crazy going on, like which affects real people who aren't Malaysian taxpayers, but everyone, which is we are now in a fully fledged trade war. And I feel like no one is paying enough attention to this. The China exports about 500 billion dollars a year of stuff to america and now fully half of that stuff is being hit by american tariffs at 10 percent. and then the minute that the christmas shopping season is over on the first of january those tariffs are meant to go up to 25 percent, and the entire global supply chains you know are going to come a cropper and they feel like whoa and Everyone's like, oh, look, the stock market is hitting new highs. doesn't matter. No big deal. Am I, am I missing something or is this not actually like a big deal? I think it's important to think about when you're talking about the stock market,
4: you're talking about the U.S. equity market, where right now we still have such incredibly robust corporate earnings. We have so many good signals coming out of the U.S. You have such inflows of capital coming in to the U.S. So I think that's part of the reason, one, why you're not seeing quite the impact on the US stock market also in terms of how the stock market immediately reacted partly was cuz they had actually a lot of people thought that it, this was going to be more extreme the tariffs were going to come into effect earlier so but that's why actually
1: but it is a big deal it is
4: a big deal no i mean i think long term of course it's a big deal even medium term it's a big deal the problem is that right now not the problem but the reason you're not seeing more of an impact in the US is just because right now the US is like the only game in town
1: so where are we seeing an impact if anywhere? Because I I spent a bunch of time on on a sort of my fact set terminal um, this week, um, looking at various... You figured out how to use it? I'm still working out how to use it. I'm using the help function a lot. Um, Trying to work out, trying to find an indicator, trying to find a market somewhere on the planet that I could point to and say, look, this has gone down and that shows how important the trade deal is, and I basically failed. Well,
4: durable goods orders were down, and if you look, no, I mean
1: that's it's not. Come. Emily's like is is now officially falling am <laughs> I'm just, I'm
4: just saying, hey, look, we talked about celebrities for like, um, a. <laughs> So
1: it's like, look at the Baltic Dry Index. But
4: but if if, if you are looking at what we've seen in the Chinese stock market, if you are looking at what we're seeing in the yuan, you're definitely seeing an impact of this. It's just going to take a little while for this to fully feed down into U.S. prices. And then at the same time, we have inflation for other reasons, which makes it a little bit complicated as well. But I would say, yes, we're certainly seeing this in other markets.
1: Yeah. And one thing we should say about the yuan is that if you have a Chinese currency, which is 8 to 10% weaker on the year, and you slap a 10% tariff on Chinese goods, which stay constant in local currency terms, then the amount the importers pay actually remains more or less constant.
4: Yeah, it's still a, it's a little complicated. It's true to a certain extent. I mean, I think that a lot of people think they've allowed a little bit of devaluation, but they need to keep. They can't allow a tremendous amount of devaluation. When people think like, "Oh, they're just going to you know massively cut the value of the yuan to help exports," that doesn't make any sense for the medium term. So it doesn't we, so, make any sense in terms of what China is trying to do now with their economy.
1: So we don't need to worry about a the trade war becoming a currency war.
4: No, almost certainly. They're not going to massively start selling treasuries. That also makes absolutely no sense. No, but that's, kind of that's a different it. question.
1: Why? It is. I, yeah, yeah. I'm safe saying
4: those are the two things you hear all the time and neither of those make a lot of sense. What you're probably going to see is China playing the long game and saying, "Look, A, we're not going to try to do much of anything before the midterms because we know Trump's doing a lot of this simply to try to gin up support f- before the midterms, so he's probably going to be in a better negotiating position post the midterms." And yeah, I, I think right now they're just like, look, this guy's going to be out of office eventually. So I, I do you, think do that you they're going to
3: yeah, sorry. sorry, do you buy that, that China's got a lot more to lose than, than the US has to lose? Because oh, it, it exports more than... than yeah, the, the US the exports US like $100 billion. Well, and it's not even
4: just that. It's that if you're talking about the state of the Chinese economy, they're, they've been trying to pull back in terms of leverage in in the their entire economy. And they've had to actually kind of stop doing that because... Stop doing what? of reducing credit, reducing debt in the system and making debt harder to access because you've seen slower growth because of tariffs. And so they need to offset that. So now this is actually really affecting their economic policy. So, so- basically
1: the the, pro- the big problem that people worry about with non-performing loans in China, they were trying to deal with that problem, but now they can't deal with that problem anymore because they have to keep the liquidity coming because they're facing all of these tariffs.
2: I just... Um- called my friend Mark at Bloomberg to talk about China because it's complicated. And so I wanted someone to easily explain it to me. So I didn't have to read a bunch of stuff. And um, what
1: did Mark at Bloomberg say?
2: He said a few things. But one of the more interesting things he told me, he read Bob Woodward's book, and I didn't. <laughs> but apparently, in Bob Woodward's book, Trump is uh, reading some document about trade. And he writes in all caps on the document, trade is bad
1: this is the official policy of the president i mean of the United i think
2: States. i think that sums up the reason a i was having trouble understanding what's going on with the u.s china trade war because at the bottom of it is this one man who doesn't understand what trade is who just de facto thinks it's bad enacting a truly dumb policy that's having global implications and disrupting geopolitics in this like way that no one really understands what's going to happen so far nothing is happening but well, maybe I mean, things are
1: happening but the other thing is that when Trump writes trade in is bad in capital letters on <laughs> a speech um, he's not talking about the chinese trade deficit he's talking about trade yes, globally yes. and so he is talking about canada like what people are forgetting is we are in the middle of a really important negotiation with canada right now to try and keep nafta alive and the General overriding principle that the White House brings to these negotiations is trade is bad. And we have never had a trade trade negotiation where one side believes that. And
2: let's just step back and acknowledge to listeners that no one agrees with him except maybe Peter Navarro and his his base. Trade is good. We're all benefiting from trade. It's okay to have a deficit with China. They they make cheap stuff. We buy the cheap stuff. The, we love the the I, mean, I, love, I
3: love the way that he ha- he sort of makes it <laughs> difficult to trade, but then he has to pay off the soybean farmers in yeah. the Midwest oh, because they've...
1: Because the, the problem here is, well, is that Donald Trump, for all that he went to Joe Lowe's alma mater, Wharton... Define um, went to. <laughs> um, has utterly failed to turn up to the class where they taught Ricardo's principle of comparative advantage. And <laughs> if he did turn up to that class, he certainly didn't understand it. And... That's really depressing because you kind of need to understand that in order to be able to do trade negotiation. But more to the point, the American public never went to that class either. And so what he's doing is he's abusing the ignorance of Americans when it comes to relatively unintuitive concepts. It's like dumb and dumber, advantage. honestly. Because yeah. yeah.
4: when people hear that we have a deficit, they think, oh, well, a deficit, that must be a bad thing. Nobody talks about the capital account surplus. <laughs> exactly. J-
3: Jolo also didn't go to that class. He, he, <laughs> he spent the whole time networking and um, he actually wrote a Wharton uh, newspaper article where he stole—he was stealing stuff from brokerage, brokerages, research pieces and just passing it off as himself. Which, that's what he did when he was there.
4: Can I just <laughs> say, if you've ever had to read a lot of those brokerage reports, you're like, if you're going to steal. <laughs> like, can you well, steal something which is
1: readable? Well he,
3: he, well, he also stole one, which was about Enron being a great company just before Enron <laughs> collapsed.
2: And the other thing that Mark told me, which maybe um, Tom and Anna, you can address, is that Trump is late to the game because China is become transitioning to more consumer economy. Oh, no, that's and- what I was
4: trying to kind of say in terms of their economic policy in relation to devaluing the currency Mm -hmm. that they've been shifting more like less focused on an export driven economy and more focused on consumer consumption Mm -hmm. it's so yes what your friend said is exactly correct that this actually would cause china to have to change the policy of what they want to do now would not be good for them
1: okay let's have a numbers round um why don't we start with tom because i feel that like many of the book authors that come on this show. You're
3: going to have a book-related number. Oh, yes, you've caught me out. I've caught you up. Okay, it's 7.45 trillion. Can you guess what it is? It's
4: the amount of money in sovereign wealth funds.
3: Is that because I emailed it around (laughs) Yes, it's the uh, the amount of assets held by sovereign wealth funds globally, and that is more than hedge funds and private equity combined, which is 3 trillion and 3 trillion and 6 trillion. So that you know, that's why we were talking earlier about Jolo and sovereign wealth funds. And why did he, when he went off to the Middle East as a student at Wharton, and he met these young guys running sovereign wealth funds in the Middle East? Why did he want to run one in Malaysia? Well, because it's a crap ton of money, and he would be could be in control of it.
0: Can
2: I ask you one question though? Sometimes sovereign wealth funds are really good for the people who live in the places. Like a, someone, I think Matt Stoller, someone just wrote a paper suggesting the U.S. have a sovereign. Wealth fund, for example. I mean, Alaska has a fund. You mentioned yeah, the, I mean, They can be good. I
3: mean, the yes, Norway, not, yes. Norway fund is, is arguably good. Yeah. yeah. It's yeah. I mean, the, Nor- gone, I mean but- the Norway fund, well, I mean, I'm, I'm no expert on sovereign wealth funds, but the Norway fund is an, is an attempt to conservatively hold uh, the oil wealth of Norway for future future generations. Right. So
4: they're like, let's underperform. <laughs>
3: Right, with our investment
4: right. strategy, but yeah, no, make we'll,
3: make less in the market. Danny exactly. Duke would like but, that. But, but but you know that's one thing, and then there then but all but most of the new sovereign wealth funds. Th- there's been a huge increase of these assets. This, you know five years ago that was not the case that sovereign wealth funds were greater than private equity and hedge funds, and the, the increase in the new funds has happened in places in emerging markets with poor governance standards. Right. That's and,
1: and, and and yeah, and it feeds into the weirdest places. You know, the, the Saudis give a bunch of money to SoftBank. SoftBank gives a bunch of money to Uber. It's all... Anyway, yeah. um, My, I'm going to jump in with my number because it's also vaguely related. I kind of half thought this was going to turn up in the conversation, but it didn't. $234 billion is the amount of money that Danske Bank laundered through its Estonian subsidiary. You know who
3: broke that story? My co-author, Bradley Oh, uh, Amazing.
2: <laughs>
1: um, another, like, you know, undercovered story. Like, w- this is, you know, a v- pretty important Danish bank, which happens to have a subsidiary in Estonia, and they just sit there and launder 200 billion euros. Like, how does that even happen? And yes, and we don't, we still don't really know like whose money it was or where it went from, where it went to, any of that stuff. It's
3: bonkers. Small, small institutions are, are more willing to, mm-hmm. to move that kind of money. Okay. Emily?
2: Okay, so I'm going to use the numbers round to promote my own story, which I almost never do, I swear.
1: As, as, as often as you like, we love your stories.
2: Oh, great. Okay, so my number is eight. Eight is the number of female law clerks from Yale Law School that a professor there, Amy Chua, placed um, to clerk for Judge Brett Kavanaugh, who is right um, now—his nomination hangs in the balance for the Supreme Court. Um, So I reported this week that Amy Chua was going around telling her female uh, law students that Brett Kavanaugh liked his law clerks to dress in a certain way. (laughs) And— Um, not great, not a great look for Amy Chua and her husband, um, Jed Rubenfeld was giving similar advice. And the one woman I talked to that I cover in this article, Rubenfeld said, as, as we head into clerkship season, which is very important at Yale, this is like, these people are g- incredibly ambitious, it's not enough to get like a, a good job at a law firm when they're done. It's like, they want to get a clerkship at the Supreme Court and then, you know, Golden ticket. So, for but first, they have to get these clerkships with the federal judiciary. Um, so, Jed Rubenfeld says to her, "As you approach your interviews, you should know about two judges. One is Alex Kaczynski in the Ninth Circuit. He sexually harasses women." And she was like, "Yeah, I know. Apparently, a lot of people knew." And the other is Brett Kavanaugh, who is now again under consideration um, for the Supreme Court. And he said, "He doesn't sexually harass." She she was assured, but. He likes women to have a, a certain look. And then subsequently The Guardian reported more detail. And the the look, as you probably have guessed by now, is, like, attractive, model-like. So that's just – and this is Yale Law School. And the, I'll say one more thing, and I'm sorry. I'm totally promoting myself. But, um, like, these women are very smart. <laughs> like, they – worked really hard to get to Yale Law School and they're like, this is going to be great. And I'm going to work really hard and I'm gonna succeed and I'm going to get that clerkship and then I'm going to get to the Supreme Court And because I'm so smart and successful. And then they're told by these professors who are like the connection to that job, like this is very important. They're told, yeah, do all that, but also you got to look good, really good. And, you know, it's kind of gross.
1: Yeah. I mean, I'm going to jump in here with, uh, another number. Why not? We'll have a five-number numbers round, Um, which is 95%, which came out also this week. 95% is the percentage of female newscasters who have straight hair. Like, you're not (laughs) allowed. There's there's basically an unwritten rule in television that no female newscaster is allowed to have (laughs) naturally curly hair.
2: (laughs) Do the men have curly hair?
1: I think the men can... No, I don't think they do. I'm not sure about the men. Interesting. Um, Anna, what's the number? That
2: has implications, so, Yeah, it does. Oh,
4: like,
1: that's what I was thinking, No, too, I mean, they were like, talking... Look, this this was black newscasters as well, who all felt the need to... Don't the men have hair. to have
3: hair, like, from a Lego? <laughs> that's
2: so interesting. If you look at pictures, I looked at a lot of pictures of Kavanaugh's clerks, and I'd say, like, 90% have pin straight hair, yeah. long
4: hair. My number is going to seem really boring.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
4: <laughs> My number is five dollars that is how much it costs to ship a four and a half pound package from Beijing to the United States if you want to ship a package from through the postal service from New York to California it costs about twenty dollars so I'm this has to do with these kind of universal postal rates and there's the Universal Postal Union, which sets some of these. And this is bizarrely part of our current kind of trade war with China, which is that the Trump administration is trying to change these postal rates and arguing that essentially the postal service is being kind of um, taken advantage of by the Chinese and taken advantage of by this international organization because these these rates were set years ago when China was still considered a, like a least developed country. And it's I actually think it's kind of interesting because it really does affect e-commerce because these were all set before the real development of e-commerce.
1: So one of the reasons why, when when I go onto Instagram and I click on one of those Shopify links and I buy a pair of shoes, which says that it's made in Italy, but in fact is made in China. um, One of the reasons I can get those shoes so cheaply is because it costs the vendor almost nothing to ship those shoes to me from China just in the post.
4: Exactly. And to me, I actually think we can just keep these because I think as someone who buys everything online, I'm like, i good with it, good <laughs> with it.
1: But I thought it was kind of interesting. Okay, I think that's it for the main show. I, we are going to talk a little bit more about the partying of JOLO in Slate Plus because um, that's a kind of awesome part of the show which we haven't really touched on. Other than that, if you... Um, or a Slate Plus member, listen to that. If you're not, thank you for listening. Um, tune in next week when we're going to be talking to the one and only Annie Duke, the poker player, um, who also has a workout. Um, many thanks to Max Jacobs for producing. Keep the emails coming, at slate.com, And we will talk to you next week on Slate
3: Money.